Good morning. I invite you. <laughs> Thanks. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 129. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, that's on page 658. You know it's summer here at UPC when you get to hear from your pastoral interns. And it's a privilege to be able to bring to you this morning God's Word. We read in Psalm 129, starting with verse 1, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder the sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come and to praise you this morning to sit under your word. Lord, we pray that it would be a lamp to our feet. Lord, and we pray that it would be a path to the cross, that we would come before you this morning with hands spread wide but empty, ready to receive your message for us. Lord, we pray that this would not just be information, but that you would work transformation in our hearts. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So this psalm, as we see, is intentionally placed where it is in the Psalter. Um, Because in many ways, it serves as the sequel or the other side of the coin to Psalm 128, which we heard last week. Psalm 128 is a lot about blessing. So... It wasn't lost on me when I saw that Caleb got to preach about blessing and I get to preach about curse. But it's a very important aspect. It's something that we can't forget. And that's one reason why I appreciate this church, because we're preaching through Scripture. And this is one that, frankly, if I'm honest, I might just sort of skip over. But it's an important lesson to temper our understanding of what a balanced view of life is according to Scripture. Last week we heard about how happiness is found within the confines of God's holiness. That God sets forth his ideal of of blessing, the way he, he intended life to be. And this psalm asks a very important question, what happens when things don't turn out that way? So putting these two psalms together presents a balanced view of life according to Scripture. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, near the end, when the people of Israel are about to go into the Promised Land, Moses puts before them um, these essentially two paths, blessings and curse. And he tells them, "Down, down the one path of blessing, you'll receive life like it was promised to be since the garden. And down the other path, you have disobedience and you'll receive death which enter the world through our rebellion. And you see this all throughout the Psalms as well. 
Um, some examples, Psalm thir- uh, Proverbs 13:21: Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Or Proverbs 11:6: The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. And so, as Caleb mentioned last week, these are general truths. These are these are ways in which God has set forth: If you want to find life, pursue this. If you want to find death, then pursue this. And so he sets these two out. And they represent God's intended shalom for the world. But they also serve as warnings for what rebellion looks like. What we have to be careful, though, is creating too much of a black and white view of the world. Job's friends did this. When they saw all the calamities that were coming on him, they just assumed obviously Job has some hidden sin that he hasn't confessed. Obviously there's something he's not dealing with in his life. Otherwise God wouldn't have removed his hand of blessing from him. They had simplified life down to just black and white. And that's one of the reasons we have the wisdom literature to correct and to temper this black and white view of thinking. Because truth is rarely found in just the extremes. And I'm not saying that truth isn't absolute. It's just that our vantage point of it is usually skewed. We see from God's point of view, or we can't see, I should say, from God's point of view, all the millions of little decisions and the turn of events that happen in our lives every day. We do not have immaculate perception of life. And so we need God's wisdom that we find in these general truths, but we also find in the overarching stories like in Job and Ecclesiastes and in these Psalms. And then finally, he obviously gives us the ultimate illustration of this in his own life. The one person who deserved God's shalom got suffering. The one person who merited all of God's favor and should have received nothing but God's blessing felt the sting of betrayal. And so that brings us to our text today. In this psalm, we'll see that sowing suffering only reaps shame, but the Lord's righteousness brings salvation. So first, let's look at verses 1 through 3 and and what it means to sow suffering. Verse 1, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. From the beginning of the psalm, we're asked to think back to the infant stages of the church. From the very beginning, as soon as Adam and Eve are out of the garden, um, Abel is persecuted and killed by Cain. Noah is ridiculed for his obedience. Abraham faces hardships and trials because of his faith. His grandson Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, and even in prison is um, betrayed again. But I think what everybody would think of first, and especially those reading the psalm, would have been their time in slavery in Egypt. Look at the picture that he paints in verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. You can envision the taskmasters in Egypt standing above and behind with using their whips to plow deep trenches into the backs of the Israelite slaves. It's a gruesome sight. 
And in the case of the Israelites, this psalm could also have pointed to their not-too-distant past. That as they sang this psalm on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, they're reminded of their exile in Babylon. Those singing this psalm would have real physical scars that they held simply because they were the people of God. And so this imagery of plowing and harvesting paints a picture for us that says um, evil is using other people for personal gain. Unwilling to work for a common goal, wickedness here is portrayed as an exploitation of others. And this may not be what we always think of when we think of evil. Evil is not just an abstract, disembodied idea that we imagine philosophers argue about. But evil is essentially relational. If, if the entire law is summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor, then we could say that the opposite of that would be all the countless ways. Sin is all the countless ways that we use or manipulate or exploit God and others. And I think that's important for us this morning because I would like to doubt that none of us have experienced exactly what the psalmist is talking about. I'm I'm hoping there are no employers here who've ever used a whip to motivate your employees. But what we can look at this morning is the um, the deeper desires that drive this type of behavior. And we'll find them in our own hearts, I believe, as well. Because there's always been this mentality in the world that says, I have to put myself first. In order to survive, I'm going to have to do so at no, at, at any cost. Even if it means climbing over the backs of others, I've got to look out for myself. Look out for number one, because nobody else will. And this can be nation against nation. This could be race against race, or tribe against tribe, or company against company, or team against team, or even person against person. Basically, we all live with this inner voice of self-doubt and contempt that says, at the core, I know I'm not good enough. I know that I don't measure up. So I've got to prove my worth. I know there's something broken within me. And so we will wrap our lives in performance, hoping to quiet or to drown out this inner critic, this nagging, persistent voice that says, I don't really measure up. It's this voice inside of us that reminds us that we are not on the inside, who we desperately project to be on the outside. And it's this type of deep desire, this voice that gets played out in the world through putting other people down so that we can elevate ourselves. Now this could be the the schoolyard bully, this could be the violent spouse, this could be the uh, workaholic boss, the overbearing mother, the father who cares way too much about his kid's sports team. Or this can be the more systemic ways that we see it play out. It's a drive for economic status. It says, if I can have just enough beauty or toys or 
internet followers or academic diplomas or financial security or power or prestige, then I'll have proved my worth. We'll have tipped the scales of dignity and depravity that wage war in our souls back into our favor. It's, it's this drive that promises, surely if I can just get there, then I will be deserved to be seen and loved. And so for many reasons, we'll listen to these promises at all costs to those around us. One of my professors and members here, Scott Swain, has said, tyranny is using your authority for your own flourishing at the expense of those you lead. But biblical leadership is exercising authority at your own expense for the flourishing of those you lead. The gospel essentially flips the script on our own hearts and on the message that we receive from the world. So what is the response of the psalmist to this harsh reality? How does he respond? And it's in a way that I think we can very easily overlook sometimes. It's right there in verse 1, the second part, where he says, Let Israel now say... So this might get passed over, but it's an important point for us because twice the truth of what they have experienced is sung about. And in the middle of that is this line that that Israel must acknowledge the pain that they've experienced. They're not to pretend like it doesn't exist. And I think a lot of times as Christians, as we confessed earlier, We can ignore the hurt and pain that we experience because we think essentially that the Christian life is about pretending that we have it all together. And that's a, that's a heavy weight to bear. Pretending like we always have it together. Sometimes we can think that the Christian life is like an Instagram feed where the mother has all the perfect arts and crafts for her children or the father is out throwing the ball in the perfectly manicured lawn or the the spouses who spontaneously get away in these romantic and exotic locations or it's getting that perfect selfie when the light hits you just right. The Christian life is not a Snapchat filter. It's not a way that we mask over the hurt that we experience. And I love that the Psalms invite us and give voice to the hurt and the pain that we do experience. And they tell us to do it together. Let all of Israel say that now there is is just sort of for emphasis. It could be please. It could be do this. Confess this. God leads us to face this reality. The gospel tackles this reality head first. And this is important, I think, for three reasons. Because the degree to which we ignore the pain and the hurt that we experience in our own lives is the degree to which we are most likely to sow the suffering in the lives of others. The degree to which we ignore the pain in our own lives is the degree to which we will come up with a million different ways to escape that pain. 
relationship is scary. Vulnerability is scary. I had the opportunity to live next to single mothers twice so far. Uh, one was a widow and, and the second one was um, divorced. But I, because I would cut my grass, I would just volunteer to cut their grass next door. And both of them told me, well, don't worry about the backyard, which um, I was excited about because they had dogs that primarily lived in the backyard. If you've ever taken a weed eater into a yard where a dog lives, uh, it's not fun. It's messy. Um, and that's kind of the way we can sometimes operate with other people. It's like, we'll come so far, but don't ask us to go all the way into the messiness and the brokenness of your life. Because to the extent that we ignore our pain, we do not want to move towards the pain of others. Because it's too real. If I have to feel your pain, then it's just going to remind me of mine. I think this is the reason why we see over and over again, especially in books like Amos, but all throughout the prophets, that God reminds the people of Israel of what they experienced when they were captives because of the way they were treating the marginalized and the poor among them. They had forgotten their pain, and so they were sowing it in others. So now let's, let's look at how those who sow suffering and oppression in the lives of others only reap shame and disgrace. And we see this in verses 5 through 8. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaths his arm, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This imagery continues this agricultural metaphor of plowing and reaping, hoping to benefit from the sufferings of others. The wicked actually turn into a sorry, useless harvest themselves. Now, I don't want you to picture when you think of grass on a rooftop as like the Shire or um, a hobbit hole where it's all beautiful and green. Um, this was a situation where they would use mud and sticks and rocks, you know, to construct the roof of the house. And so in that insufficient soil, grass would grow up. But it was the type of grass that by the heat of an Israeli day and the, the harsh east wind that would blow in would wither it. And it would um, die. I think in a lot of ways the psalm is reminding us of how the psalms began. There's this contrast between the way, the, the description of the wicked and the description of the blessed person that we read in Psalm 1, 3, and 4. Describing the blessed person, the psalmist says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Can you feel the, the power of, of that imagery? That's something beautiful that the Psalms do, is they evoke this imagery in us. So you could almost kind of close your eyes and imagine this picture of yellow, brittle grass that's so dry that the, that the wind itself could just sort of suck the moisture out of it and kill it within a day. It says it's so small that it couldn't even fill up a handful that the people who would bind the sheaths of the harvest, they, they couldn't even get an armful of it. It's essentially, it's essentially nothing. It's useless. And then you imagine the soft green heather, the grass on the shore of this sort of bubbling brook in the shade of a forest where this fruit tree is shooting up into the enveloping canopy of the trees above. And because it's being fed by the minerals of the stream, it's producing fruit. It's being a blessing to those who pass by. It's blessed so that it can be a blessing to others. Who wouldn't want their lives to be characterized by that? It paints a picture of the hope that we have by faith in the promises of God for a life down the path of His holiness. And this psalm serves as a warning for those who choose the other path. At the core of who we really are, we have great desires, but we also have really horrible strategies for achieving those desires. And so this psalm is calling us by faith to use God's word as a roadmap for the Christian journey. Look at verse 8. It mentions a blessing that people would say as they greeted when they passed by a reaper who was out harvesting his fields. If you were to turn to Ruth 2.4, you'd read where Boaz says to those working in the field, the Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. So the point that the psalmist is making is that those who sow suffering and oppression do not reap this blessing. Instead, they reap shame and disgrace. And you might be asking yourself, well, I can look around at lots of examples where I don't see this happening. You can think of warlords in third world countries that use genocide to wage war against their own people. You can think of Companies that employ child labor and factories, and they seem to be prospering and growing as companies. You can look at um, you could look at politicians who are corrupt and would take hush money in order to kind of pass along agendas of their their friends, all the while propping up prejudicial systems that disadvantage the poor. And you'd be right. Unfortunately, this isn't new. David laments the same thing in his day as he sees the wicked prosper. And that's why it's important to remember that this journey that we're on is primarily by faith. The blessings that we experience do break into the here and now. We do experience them. But they also come alongside the results of the fall. 
the pain. We saw this firsthand when we were living in Mexico. Um, We lived in the northeast in Monterey, and it was a city that in 2006 was voted the safest city in Latin America. It was a city where you could put your head down, you could work hard, you could climb the corporate ladder, and you could get all kinds of material success. And then in 2010, 2011, when the violence of the cartels swept through that area, people were forced to look up from where they were working and to see that the most important things in their life were not their jobs. It wasn't the money. It wasn't the bank account. It wasn't the car they were driving. Because when faced with this type of suffering, they realized that all that was basically like withering grass on a rooftop. And so there was this flood that came into the church for counseling and for answers. They were seeking for more. It took this particular type of hardship and suffering to show people where they were really placing their hope and their security. We need to hold our ideas of blessing and prosperity within a balanced biblical framework. When God comforts us with financial security or healthy bodies or uh, growing vocations and all the other things that invoke happiness in us, we should not confuse the source of where our blessings come from with the source for why our blessings come. There is a difference between the source of where our blessings come from and the source for why our blessings come. It's important to remember that for a lost and dying world, this is as close to heaven as they're going to get. And for sinner, I mean for suffering believers, this is as close to hell as we're going to get. The wicked can prosper, but it doesn't mean that God is happy with them. It doesn't mean that he's pleased or that he is blessing what they do. And we can suffer as believers, and it doesn't mean that God is angry with us. As a counselor, I've had the privilege to walk with people who are grieving, and it's I walk alongside them and I help them bring their laments and their tears, their hurts, their fears to God. But it always scares me when people start to move past that to a point of despair. Because it's then that they start to call into the question call into question the very character of God. And I think it's why the psalmist puts verse four right here in the center of this psalm because it's really easy when we're going through suffering when we're in the middle of our pain to start to say well i guess god's capricious i guess he's just cruel i guess he's just out to get me we read in verse four the lord is righteous he has cut the cords of the wicked when the winds and the waves of life toss us and hurl us about Let us always cling to the unchanging character of God. The Lord is righteous. He's just. He's good. He's loyal. He's faithful. The imagery here is of God cutting the ropes that would have bound the yoke to the oxen. So out in a field that's being plowed on the backs of these people. 
in the midst of their suffering, God has cut those ropes so that they can no longer continue. He has foiled the plans of the wicked. We should not think of God as some passive observer. We have a tendency to do that sometimes, to sort of picture God as an old man perched on a passing cloud who's wringing his hands, hoping that everything turns out all right in our life. God is intimately involved in every detail. He has enacted a plan that will put an end to the suffering and oppression. But it cost him. So how can we know for sure that he's cut the hopes of the, wick, the ropes of the wicked? Because he bore those ropes on his back. We read in Psalm, I mean in Isaiah 50 verses 5 through 6, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. We hear a description of Christ's suffering on our behalf. How can we know for sure that he has cut the ropes of the wicked? Because he dealt with wickedness at its source. He used the enemy's greatest weapon against itself. He defeated death through death. He who knew no sin became sin. He overcame the world that he might win the world. He bore the cross naked and disgraced so that he might take away our shame. And he took on the curse that we might have a blessing. He was betrayed by his brothers that we might be brought into his family. And it's in this that we can start to see how these two Seemingly opposite truths can be held together in the plan of God. How can blessing include suffering? I think we see the answer in Romans 8, 16 and 17. We read, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, we're not just following in Israel's footsteps when we sing how great have our sufferings been since our youth. We're also following in Jesus' footsteps of suffering. He is at the head of this long train of believers that we're a part of. Our ultimate hope for addressing this inner turmoil that we experience of our souls, which at times can drive us to exploit others, is not to hide it, but to bring it to God. Psalm 129 invites us together to become people who surrender things readily to God, ready to examine our own hearts and souls and honestly say, Lord, I'm hurting. I don't like it, but I'm going to be honest with you and I'm going to put it in front of you and trust that you are a God who will do with it as you see fit. Isn't it great to know that we have a God with whom we don't have to play games? We don't have to hide. We can bring Him all our hurt and all our pain because He's a God who understands our suffering. 
We're following in the footsteps of a God who knows our hurt and pain because he's experienced betrayal. He has suffered loss. We can know that he has broken the ropes of the wicked. And it's in his brokenness that brings us blessing. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for not leaving us or forsaking us in our brokenness and rebellion. We thank you for sending your son to rescue us from the sin that so easily entangles us. Jesus, we worship you that you were willing to identify with suffering and pain to the point of the cross. Holy Spirit, grant us endurance that when we have done God's will, we may hold fast to receive what was promised. God, make us not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. For you have prevailed against our enemies. Amen.